This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play that features the most confusing and inconsistent character that Shakespeare ever created, it's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Go, Philostrative. Stir up the Athenian youth to merriments. How now, spirit, with a wonder Is all our company here? You were best to call them generally, man by man, according to the script. Now, thou, Lysander, thou hast given her rhymes and interchanged love tokens with my child. Demetrius is a worthy gentleman. So is Lysander. Godspeed for Helena. Call you me fair. Nick Bottom the Weaver, ready. Either I mistake your shape and making or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite called Robin Goodfellow. Thou speakest aright. I am that merry wanderer of the night. Are you sure that we are awake? It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream. (laughs) All right, as always, we're going to start off with a short summary. How short? This is A Midsummer Night's Dream in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of Athens. Theseus and Apollota are getting married, but other lovers aren't so lucky. Aegeus wants his daughter Hermia to marry Demetrius, but Hermia is in love with Lysander. Hermia and Lysander plot to escape, a plot overheard by Helena, a girl in love with Demetrius. Helena and Demetrius follow Lysander and Hermia into the woods, where they are watched by Oberon, the king of the fairies, and his band of sprites. Oberon instructs his servant Puck to get a love potion so Oberon can punish Titania, his wayward wife, but also tells Puck to use the potion to make Demetrius fall in love with Helena. Puck gets it wrong, and before long, Lysander and Demetrius are both in love with Helena, and no one loves Hermia at all. Meanwhile, a band of townspeople have gone into the woods to perform a play they're going to perform at Theseus's wedding. One of them is Bottom, an arrogant fool who has his head transformed to the head of a donkey by the mischievous Puck. Titania, cursed by the love potion, falls in love with the transformed Bottom. Farce ensues until Oberon instructs Puck to set everything right. Demetrius loves Helena, Lysander loves Hermia, Theseus changes his mind and lets everyone marry whoever they want. Bottom and his theater troupe perform their play for the couples and Oberon and Titania reconcile before leading the fairies in a song and dance. A Midsummer Night's Dream is more or less like a bottle of cheap champagne. It's sweet, relatively benign, and you can't really blame anyone for liking it, even if you yourself would rather have a good glass of scotch. A Midsummer Night's Dream is not a particularly good play, but it is a surprisingly well-written one, and this alone is what saves it. Shakespeare is having so much fun with his little fantasy of lovers and fairies that, for all the play's problems, it's hard not to watch the show and leave the theater feeling more than a little drunk. The play marks something of a departure for him, involving, as it does, magic and fairies. And while I'm glad he didn't choose to make this his genre of choice, the play stands out as something striking and individual in a repertoire of histories, romantic comedies, and plays where everyone dies by the final scene. A shambling comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a shaggy assortment of comedic sketches that are loosely connected by a plot so flimsy you could probably fit the entire globe theater into its holes. There are no villains, unless you count Aegeus, who, in keeping with Shakespearean tradition, is another wicked father who doesn't care about his daughter's opinion when it comes to the question of who she should marry. Having introduced himself, Aegeus abruptly disappears, only to return at the end of the play and prove himself to be a cat without any claws. His daughter has defied him, Theseus has overruled him, and Demetrius is no longer interested in being on his side. 
Yet Aegeus, who in the first scene called for his own daughter's death, does nothing but grumble and slip into the background. I don't actually mind that Aegeus is such a toothless wonder, since as we saw in Love's Labor's Lost, having no villain isn't always a bad thing. In any case, A Midsummer Night's Dream has so many plots that one more would probably have snapped the play in two. If you include the storyline of Theseus' marriage to Hippolyta, there are four storylines occurring simultaneously, a surprising choice by Shakespeare, who usually had trouble juggling one plot, let alone a quartet. But he switches so quickly between the stories that if you're ever bored with Helena and Demetrius, and why wouldn't you be, you can take heart that Bottom or Puck are just around the corner. The great critic Harold Bloom, to my eternal mystification, has called this play, quote, an undoubted masterpiece without flaw, end quote, a remark that is so hagiographic that I sometimes wonder if he and I read a different play. The final act of A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which the Mechanicals perform their play, Pyramus and Thisbe, always feels like it was added on just to pad the show's running time. There's a similar problem in Love's Labor's Lost, but at least there, the amateur theatrical happens before the action of the play has been resolved. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, all the problems have already ended. Nothing is at stake for the performance. If Bottom and his crew fail, what has been won or lost? Shakespeare, who had worked so hard to come up with a farcical story for the first four acts, abruptly runs out of steam. He can't come up with a way to infuse the fifth act with any sort of dramatic tension. The story is over. As proof of this, I cite the 1962 ballet by George Balanchine, with music by Felix Mendelssohn. There, Balanchine removed the fifth act entirely, he also did away with all the mechanicals, and to no one's surprise, the story of the play remained exactly the same. But all of this is a minor quibble when compared to the insufferable Helena. How do you solve a problem like Helena? Did Shakespeare ever create a more confusing or inconsistent character? Let's start with her love for Demetrius. We are told that once upon a time Demetrius wooed her, but we never see a single hint that this might be true. From the moment he appears, he hates her with the entire force of his soul. I love thee not, therefore pursue me not. Where is Lysander and fair Hermia? The one I'll slay, the other slayeth me. Thou told me they were stolen unto this wood, and here am I, and wood within this wood, because I cannot meet my Hermia. Hence, get thee gone, and follow me no more. Demetrius hates Helena almost as much as Bertram hates his Helena in All's Well That Ends Well. That Shakespeare wrote two plays in which a girl named Helena loves a man who doesn't love her back was either his way of getting back at a girl named Helena who had slighted him in his youth, or it was an inside joke that only those who know Greek mythology will truly understand. In mythology, of course, Helena is the girl whose face launched a thousand ships and started the Trojan War. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, she couldn't launch a canoe, and the only war she starts never gets beyond the forest of Athens. I suppose it's possible that Demetrius was sincere when he wooed Helena, but I suspect he was the fellow who took a girl out for coffee and found her obsessed with him the next day. Nothing in the text suggests a prior romantic relationship. I suppose actors could play it otherwise, though I've never seen any who have bothered to try. Helena's continued affections for this, quote, spotted and inconstant man, end quote, makes no sense unless she's either unstable or a masochist who adores being abused. Here is her excuse for dragging Demetrius into the woods. I will go tell him of fair Hermia's flight. Then to the wood will he tomorrow night pursue her. And for this intelligence, if I have thanks, it is a dear expense. But herein mean I to enrich my pain, to have his sight thither and back again. Helena is not only willing to destroy Hermia and Lysander by exposing their plot, but is also perfectly happy to enrich her own suffering. 
There's absolutely no logic to this. There is no logic to allowing Demetrius to pursue Hermia. Logically, Helena should keep the secret and let Hermia escape. No Hermia, no more competition. But Shakespeare had a play to write, and so Helena drags Demetrius into the forest, where she tells him that the more he hates her, the more she will beg for more. Do I entice you? Do I speak you fair? Or rather, do I not, in plainest truth, tell you I do not, nor I cannot love you? And even for that, do I love you the more? <sighs> I am your spaniel. And Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me, but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me, only give me leave, unworthy as I am, to follow you. One could argue that Demetrius and Helena have a sadomasochistic relationship, except at no point does Demetrius ever seem interested in engaging with Helena. He seems sincere in his wish that she would stop being a thorn in his side. Indeed, when he's with her, he never says anything else. He even threatens to leave her to be torn apart by wolves. I'll run from thee and hide me in the brakes and leave thee to the mercy of wild beasts! Yet despite all of this, Helena loves him. Or does she? To be honest, I'm not sure Helena loves anything other than being unhappy. After the intervention of Puck, Demetrius sees Helena and suddenly declares his love. Logically, she would first react with joy. Suspicion might come later, unless in addition to being a masochist, Helena is also paranoid, which I suggest is her only other defining trait. After all, we know that once upon a time Demetrius loved her and left her. Perhaps he left her because she never once believed that he ever truly loved her at all. Consider this. Every time someone declares their love for Helena, her immediate response is to declare them a liar. Here's her response to Lysander after he announces that his affections have taken a Hellenistic course. Wherefore was I to this keen mockery born? When at your hands did I deserve this scorn? And here she is when Demetrius says the same thing. Oh, spite! Oh, hell! I see you all are bent to set against me for your merriment. If you were civil and knew courtesy, you would not do me thus much injury. Can you not hate me, as I know you do? But you must join in souls to mock me, too! Now, not only does she suspect Demetrius and Lysander of fooling her, she also accuses Hermia of being, quote, one of this confederacy, end quote. I can accept that Helena might be suspicious if two men suddenly adore her, but why does she suspect Hermia would be part of the joke? What would poor Hermia possibly gain from such a thing? She's trying to get out of the forest so she can marry Lysander. Why would she waste time playing pranks on Helena? To summarize, Helena is a woman who decides it's better to betray her friends than help them, accepts abuse from her lover instead of going to find someone else, and suspects everyone of being against her the moment they are nice to her. Oh, and I almost forgot, she also forgets all of her objections the next morning when she wakes up. At the end of Act 4, Demetrius declares his love, exactly as he did the night before, only this time, Helena accepts his love without objection. No matter how you explain her character for the first three acts, what can explain this sudden reversal at the end of Act 4? Certainly not the text. Shakespeare gives her almost nothing to say. Helena is so absurd that it's no wonder she needs the fairy's magic to win Demetrius to her side. The other Helena, the one in All's Well That Ends Well, has no such luck, and she has to scheme her way into Bertram's heart. The Athenian Helena is so without guile that were it not for the fairies, she would remain unmarried for the rest of her life. 
one almost has to pity poor Demetrius, who may be a bit of a cad, but otherwise hardly deserves the fate of being magically linked to Helena for the rest of his days. Hermie and Lysander are dull, but at least they're realistic. Bottom is magnificent, and his friends are earnest fools who just want to stage the best darn production of Pyramus and Thisbe they can. Only Demetrius and Helena feel like they are automatons. They do whatever Shakespeare tells them to do, and the actors playing them have no choice but to do the same. George Bernard Shaw rewrote the fifth act of Cymbeline, but I always want to rewrite the fifth act of A Midsummer Night's Dream and show a Demetrius, chastised, who has to convince a skeptical Helena that his love is sincere. But until I write it, and until the world decides to use my version instead of Shakespeare's, Helena will remain one of the most perplexing women in the canon. If you're an actress and you're auditioning for A Midsummer Night's Dream, beg to play Hermia. Bribe your way into Titania's dress, but stay away from Helena, who is, at worst, crazy, and at best, a masochist with paranoid tendencies. Fortunately, Helena and Demetrius aren't the stars of the show, and their nonsensical behavior can be taken as the grit that goes with the gravy. As with Love Labor's Lost, The Tempest, and The Merry Wives of Windsor, Shakespeare created an ensemble piece, which is stronger as a whole than when split into parts. If the play was called Helena and Demetrius, we would be treating it as another Troilus and Cressida. Instead, A Midsummer Night's Dream comes across as a great delight. As I said, this proves that it is best equated with cheap champagne. Some of the individual ingredients may be poor, but the overall effect is such a delight that even I, obnoxious critic that I am, have to admit that A Midsummer Night's Dream has more than a few moments of glory too. There is no other play quite like A Midsummer Night's Dream in the entire canon, which may be the first reason why it is so popular. The history plays are encumbered by, well, the history of England, but A Midsummer Night's Dream exists entirely on its own. Not weighed down by lengthy soliloquies or battle scenes, it manages to float along and bring audiences along for the ride. To be sure, Shakespeare went into his usual storehouse for many of his ingredients. Lysander and Hermia are just a luckier and smarter version of Romeo and Juliet, while the rude mechanicals clearly echo the ones that can be found in Love's Labor's Lost. Even the fifth act of Dream, as I have said, is a callback to the last act of Love's Labor's Lost, where another poor production by amateurs is mocked by the nobles for whom it is being performed. But if Lysander and Hermia are an improvement on Romeo and Juliet, so too are Bottom and his friends an improvement on Love's Labor's Lost own troupe of theatrical clowns. Bottom is one of Shakespeare's best fools, and the fantastical plot in which he is given the head of a donkey only to be wooed by the fairy queen is truly superb. Bottom's transformation marked a unique departure for Shakespeare, who, until 1595, had only touched on the supernatural in other works. See The Many Prophecies and Ghosts in Richard III, or all of those plays about Henry VI. In those plays, it's debatable whether the ghosts are meant to truly exist. But here, Shakespeare is unequivocal in his statement that the fairy world exists, and that magic is real. People in his day believed in fairies and demons, and it's difficult to determine which category Oberon and his entourage fall under, for though classified as fairies, their interference in human affairs, at least in this play, could be classified as a little demonic. Oberon and Titania are essentially Zeus and Hera descended from the sky. Zeus, of course, is the king of the Greek gods, well known for seducing mortals, and not liking it when his wife Hera does the same. Naturally, Oberon is not that different. Tarry, rash wanton, am not I thy lord? Then I must be thy lady. But I know when thou hast stolen away from fairyland, 
and in the shape of Corinth sat all day, playing on pipes of corn and versing love to amorous Philida. The fairies are essentially lesser angels, full of the same petty faults as the rest of us. Oberon is lusty, Titania is proud, and Puck is the mischievous child, who is nonetheless the smartest in the room. There are many ways to play Puck, of course, but I don't buy for a second that he makes a single mistake in this play. When he drops the love potion into Lysander's eye instead of Demetrius's, I'm always certain he's doing it with a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> Through the forest have I gone, but Athenian found I none, on whose eyes I might approve this flower's force in stirring love. Night and silence, who is here? Weeds of Athens he doth wear. This is he, my master said, despiseth the Athenian maid. This love potion is Shakespeare's most intriguing plot device to date. Never a master of plots, Shakespeare had to borrow one from Seneca to complete the Comedy of Errors, but he struck out on his own this time around, and while the result isn't quite comic gold, the farce of the four bewitched lovers ends almost as soon as it starts, there's enough inspiration to show that Shakespeare wasn't completely hopeless when it came to creating a story of his own. Today, the introduction of a magic love potion might be considered cheap or easy, but taken in relation to the rest of the canon, it is actually completely original. Shakespeare had given us potions before and would do so again, the one in Romeo and Juliet, the potion in Cymbeline, but those, while fabulous, were invented by mortals. The Love Potion, on the other hand, is a completely fantastic creation. It is unique to A Midsummer Night's Dream, for even Prospero, who spends his time in the Tempest abusing people with all sorts of magic, never uses his arts to sway someone's emotion in a permanent way. This permanence is important to understanding Midsummer Night's Dream's supposedly happy ending. Those who celebrate a Midsummer Night's Dream as a joyful comedy would do well to remember that Demetrius is now going to spend the rest of his life essentially bewitched. He loves Helena only because he has been drugged. He is hardly doing so of his own free will. The Love Potion is remarkable both as a plot device and a metaphor. Love is a drug, as anyone who has fallen into it well knows, and we often fall in love with an illusion long before reality sets in. This is clearly Helena's problem. She loves Demetrius for who she wants him to be rather than who he is. Yet, as we all know, he is clearly an ass. Helena, then, is chasing a figurative ass, and her dilemma is echoed when Titania finds herself in pursuit of a literal one. This echoing was one of the several clever things Shakespeare did in constructing his many-headed plot. Many productions cast the same actor as Theseus and Oberon, and the same one as Titania and Hippolyta. They are, of course, equivalent to each other, for both are the proud and haughty nobles in love. The story of Pyramus and Thisbe that the Mechanicals are seeking to produce echoes that of Lysander and Hermia. Here are two more lovers who have to fight to be together. Shakespeare's message is clear. All love may be unique, but all lovers fall into a few clearly defined categories. This universalism is one of the reasons for the play's enduring appeal, despite its many glaring flaws. There may be four stories, but they're all pretty straightforward, which is more than you can say for the single story going on in Hamlet, a play which has achieved mythic status despite the fact that no one can agree on what it's about. Shakespeare, always wanted to try and find things for his troupe of actors to do, has supplied us with a varied ensemble that includes fairy queens, sprites, hammy actors, earnest lovers, and characters from Greek myth. I've never met an actor who hasn't had a great deal of fun in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and that includes my poor friends who have had to play the perplexing Helena. 
The play may be a delight for audiences, but it's a gift for actors, as it has one of Shakespeare's most energetic scripts, with dialogue that nimbly cavorts between elegant poetry and the sort of comic patter one almost expects to find in a modern-day Hollywood film. It also contains some of the greatest and most comic insults Shakespeare ever devised. You have her father's love, Demetrius. Let me have Hermia's. Do you marry him? Where is he? Oh, good Demetrius, wilt thou give him me? I'd rather give his carcass to my hounds. Out! Oh, oh that drives me past the bounds of maiden's patience. Go! Hang off, thou cat, thou bird, vile thing, let loose, or I will shake thee from me like a serpent. My love! Thy love? Out, tawny tartar, out! Out, loathed medicine, oh, hated potion, hence! Fie, fie, you counterfeit, you puppet, you! Get you gone, you dwarf! You minimus of hindering knotgrass made, you bead, you acorn! Whenever I watch the play, no matter how annoyed I may get about Helena's inconsistencies or the fact I have to sit through that pointless final act, I am always struck by the notion that in writing this play, Shakespeare was having fun. Written around the time he wrote Richard II, King John, and Romeo and Juliet, it must have been a great relief for Shakespeare to throw out the history and tragedy and dip into this comic, fantastical world. It's probably a relief for the rest of us as well. A Midsummer Night's Dream is exactly what its title promises it will be. Like all dreams, it's a shameless escape from the problems that plague us. It may not be Shakespeare's finest hour, but it's definitely part of his finest few days. As a side note, this is the first of Shakespeare's plays to feature an epilogue, something which is almost always included in productions, even though the epilogue is no longer needed. Shakespeare's epilogues, of course, were nothing but clever ways for the actors to tell the audience that the show has ended, and this might be a good time to take out their wallets. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended. That you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. These days, the epilogues are more or less moot, but they've become so famous that no one would dream of cutting them any more than they would dream of cutting to be or not to be from Hamlet. Still, I often wish some brave director would try. Puck's little speech here serves no narrative purpose, and the show would be much more satisfying if it ended with the fairies, their song and dance, and with Oberon's final instructions. With this field you consecrate, every fairy take his gate, and each several chamber bless through this palace with sweet peace. And the owner of it blessed ever shall in safety rest. Trip away, make no stay, meet me all by break of day. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk to you about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. There are plenty of productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream to choose from, and as with Romeo and Juliet, one can easily divide them into film productions of theatrical performances and versions adapted for the silver screen. The most recent of these is the 1999 film, with what was then considered an all-star cast. For one incredible night... Everyone will fall in love at first sight when magic lends fate. I hate thee and love Helen. A hand 
Thou art as wise as thou art beautiful. I love thee. By my life, I do. I say I love thee more than he can do. <laughs> How now, spirit? <laughs> From the greatest storyteller of all time comes the romantic comedy that proves the course of true love never did run smooth. William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, the film wasn't a resounding success in its day, but I'm still going to recommend it over the other two major motion pictures. The first came in 1935 with Mickey Rooney as a youthful puck and an attendant cavalcade of stars. There are those who adore this version, but I found the style distracting and the 1930s acting method not exactly suited to the Shakespearean text. It's not a terrible production, though, and it's certainly far better than the 1968 version directed by Peter Hall, which I found nearly unwatchable despite its stellar cast of British stalwarts Ian Holm, Judi Dench, Diana Rigg, and the fact that the movie is religiously faithful to the original text. Hall's direction and the editing make several scenes almost nonsensical, rendering the film an irritation to watch. In one scene, Lysander and Hermia are on a rowboat, benoning their state. There's Helena, says Hermia, and the next moment she's flopping onto the lawn without any indication of how she got there. Hall apparently had to do double duty since the film was being released in theaters in England, but only on television in the United States, so all this uneven direction and editing might be because he had to film in two separate mediums. I suspect the copyright has expired on this one because the version is widely available online, but I'd still say it's probably a film for curiosity seekers only. That leaves the 1999 version, which, as I said, isn't exactly a gem, but the cast does a fine job with the text, with a special shout-out to both Stanley Tucci as Puck and Kevin Kline as the arrogant bottom. As always, I'm going to leave links to all of these on the show page. Well, that's it for a Midsummer Night's Dream. Next up, we go back to the history of British kings with a play most people forget Shakespeare wrote. It's King John. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. For more information about the things I've discussed, please visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash shakespeareunbarred. And you know what? While you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time? You can also find information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world too small to contain them, and it's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. 12 plays down, 26 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.